kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keraliamur, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keraliamur and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnam, the Zuzim in Ham, the Amim in Shavikirathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Peran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to an Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Azazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Oar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Keraleomer, king of Elam, Tido, king of Goiheim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arya, king of Alasar, four kings against five. <clears throat> now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen, pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pushed them to Hobah, per, sorry, pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the person, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Romri take their share. Well, 
Thanks, Yvonne. <laughs> Can we give her a hand, actually, for doing that? <laughs> I know you wanted to, but it's a pretty reserved group here. And if you were suspicious that uh, Central is a place that tortures people, it's now been confirmed. Uh, <laughs> you did an amazing job reading the Word of God for us today. Not an easy passage. Uh, and after that reading, if you are shaking your head a, a little bit and wondering, uh, what was that all about? You're in good hands because I had the same thought. Uh, and then you see the title of the sermon, uh, A Tale of Three Kings, and you're even more confused. I mean, doesn't that guy know how to count? Uh, did he fail basic math way back in grade school? I mean, when, when I look at the text, I count 10 kings. So you see four kings that are going to war against five kings. And then all of a sudden there's this other king that shows up. So four plus five plus one equals 10. What's he talking about? Three kings. It gets better. Because there are actually 11 kings in the story. <clears throat> but we're only going to focus on three. <laughs> I know that you're uh, utterly confused by now. But all the other kings are there just to give context to the main characters of the story. And the three main characters of the story are the king of Sodom, the king of Salem, and the king of kings. What? what? You say, the king of kings? I, I don't see one of those in the story. Well, just hang on to your hats because much of today's text surrounds this character named Melchizedek and the significance of that name going forward. So if you aren't confused already, here we go. Three kings, the tale of three kings. Number one, let's talk first of all about the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom. I'm going to jump forward in the text. <clears throat> Sorry, Yvonne, I'm not rereading all of those names. I'm starting <laughs> in verse 17, and I'm going to skip uh, 18 through 20, and then I'm going to read verses 21 through 24. It'll be on the screen as well. So it says, after his return, that's Abram, after Abram's return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is, he went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, remember those three, if you paid attention earlier on, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre were Amorite allies. They weren't Israelite. Let them take their share. So let's uh, just recap what's going on. You see at the very beginning of the story, you have uh, this valley of kings, and there's these little sub-nations all around this valley. And you see Ketelamor, who is a very powerful king amongst these ten, these nine, sorry, who together with three allies make war against five. And the four on five utterly defeat the five. And after that, because he's now in control, he takes dominion over the whole territory and he brings other surrounding nations under his submission as well. 
Well, these uh, five kings who were brought into subjection, uh, 12, 13 years later, they revolt and they say, enough of this. And so uh, Ketelamara said, not a, not a chance. And he whooped him again and said, I'm in charge. And in that whooping, in that fight, uh, uh, Lot, remember Lot, who is Abram's nephew, who chose to camp just outside Sodom, remember last chapter? He gets taken as a prisoner of war. Him, all of his possessions are taken by Ketelamar and the other three kings that were with him who whipped the other five kings yet again and he takes them off as now his possession. In fact, he takes them. Lot is taken north all the way to Dan, which is uh, 140 miles before Abram, who says, I'm not putting up with this. I'm going to take 318 of my men and chase him all the way to Dan, caught him. But then he went another, I think it was Hoba, he went another 100 more miles before reclaiming finally all of his possessions, a 240-mile journey on foot to get Lot back and everything that belonged to him. And all of the spoils of that of, uh, of the, the war that Ketelamar had waged on these other kings. And then on the way back, Abram meets the king of Sodom. Now, Bera, who's the king of Sodom, does the customary thing. Remember, Sodom is at the bottom of the, of the pole here. He's one of the five kings that was defeated by Ketelamar. And he goes out realizing that all of his possessions now, which were taken along with Lot, are in Abram's possession. And he goes out to him and he says, he does the customary thing. You got to understand that Bera, king of Sodom, is not being generous here with Abram at all. He's saying, look, um, you can take everything that uh, is rightfully yours because you fought for it. That was custom at that time. If, if you whooped another nation and you, you plundered them, that was yours. But he said, just return the people. I want the people back. You can keep everything else. Good on you. You're strong. You fought. It belongs to you. I'll, you take yours. I'll take mine. We'll call a day and uh, we'll part ways from here. And Bera in this moment had a completely natural worldview. Uh, he was declaring that there wasn't anything extraordinary going on here. This was just the way things happened. Abram was stronger Therefore, he deserves the spoils. Just want my people back. That's all that matters to me right now. But the thing is, Abram was not only stronger, he was a lot stronger. <laughs> no pun intended. He was a lot stronger. With fewer men. I mean, Abram took only 318 people who were with him, and he defeated four of the strongest kings in the region who had twice whipped five other kings, single-handedly, Abram went out with 318 people against four surrounding nations or kings within, within the area where he found himself living, him and Lot, and he whooped them. This detail does not go unnoticed by the king of Salem. So let's look secondly at the king of Salem. That's the king of Sodom. Now the king of Salem. Genesis 14, now we'll do that middle part, verses 18 through 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham 
by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek sees what just happened as not Abram's doing, but God's doing. All of it. Yes, there is a natural element, but then there's the Lord. And again, we see, as we did in the last chapters, we see the sovereignty of God working his plan, and we see the free will of man doing what man is supposed to do. Abram had to take his men and go fight to reclaim Lot, but it was God who delivered, even though Abram was the one who went to war. And that's the dichotomy of our world, isn't it? that these things are separated. You've got what God is doing all the time and in all things and working his will and his purposes. And then you see what man is doing, but our world has separated those and our world sees only what appears obvious that this is what man did. But a consistent message in scripture is to see the hand of God in all things. So if you go back to the beginning of scripture, you see the creation account, which is emphasized over and over again in the New Testament, particularly Colossians chapter one, where we see that all things were created by him and for him and through him to his glory, all things belong to him. You see creation, which people want to write off of as a natural evolvement of things. You see people rebelling against God and a flood comes and he renews his covenant and his purposes through a man named Noah. And man looks at that and sees a natural catastrophe. You see the Tower of Babel where again the people are going their own way and they're forgetting about God and they're saying we've done all of these things and God stepping in and confusing their language and spreading them throughout the earth. And people try to have natural explanations for the many nations and languages in our world and they don't see the hand of God in all of this. And you see Abram, the story. You see Egypt, Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the deliverance from Egypt after the people rebelled again and God brought them back to the place where they really belonged. All along, he's using his chosen people to bring about his desired purposes and Melchizedek sees it. Melchizedek sees it. Even Nebuchadnezzar saw it. <laughs> a foreign king. One who took, again, because God's people rebelled, he took them captive to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar declared at that time when he defeated um, the nations and, and uh, took captive all of these people around him, he declared, there is no one greater than I. I'm it. And God said, oh, really? Really? And he relegated him to the field to eat grass like the cows. And in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 35, the word of God says this, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and... Does this sound familiar? And I blessed the Most High. Hmm. 
and praised and honored him who lives forever. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. This is a guy who just, you know, years before it said, there's no one greater than me. And all of the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can say, stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And Melchizedek saw that. About 10 years ago, I think it was 2009, I made a trip to uh, Peru. Was that 2009 or 2010? Somewhere in there. It was about 10 years ago. I made a trip to Peru with our denomination's uh, mission organization. At that time it was called uh, MB Mission and Services International. They invited me to go along to what was called LARAC, which is their regional retreat and consultation in Latin America. So Latin America retreat and consultation. They do a retreat and a consultation in one region of the world every year. And all of the missionaries from that region, whether it be in Asia, North Africa and Europe, or around the world, uh, they get together um, once every, wherever, however many regionals they do, I think four a year. And they invited me along to participate, to serve, to pray, to hear, to have my eyes open and my heart changed, which certainly happened to me when I went there. So we had missionaries all over South America and Latin America, Central America, in one place. And for a week straight, every morning and every evening, Two missionaries would share in the morning and two missionaries would share in the evening. Four testimonies every day for a week about what they saw, just like Melchizedek saw. It was life-changing for me. It was life-changing. They saw God. They saw God. They saw God. And nothing but God. They did not at all talk about the work of man but about what God was doing. And when there is no money and when there is no access to health care as we have it, when there are shaman and witch doctors and all manner of spiritual activity that is more obvious than what meets our eyes, there is a different worldview. You see the world through a different set of eyes, the eyes of Melchizedek. When people die and they're lying on the table and the whole village is mourning around them and people pray and people are raised from the dead. Those are the stories that I heard. The king of Sodom saw one plus one equals two. He saw you keep what you earn, what you deserved, and you move on. The king of Salem saw God in all things, orchestrating all things, over all things. He owns all things. God most high, the almighty, possessor of heaven and earth, who deserves honor and glory and blessing. Amen. Do you know what Melchizedek means? Anybody have the answer to that one? It means king of righteousness. That's literally the Hebrew word for Melchizedek. It means king of righteousness. 
And this king of righteousness ruled in a place in a kingdom called peace. <laughs> That's what Salem means. King of righteousness in the kingdom of peace. This king of righteousness was both a priest of God most high and a king of peace. Hmm. Hmm. So years later, uh, when Moses, uh, who is the author of the Pentateuch, so the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So years later, Moses, who wrote this story that we read this morning, remember Moses, the one given the law of God, given all of the instructions of God and how things are supposed to be ordered in the priesthood, in kings, in sacrifices, in all of these things that we often read through and go boring, 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 all these hard names, genealogies, all of that kind of stuff. Moses wrote it all. Um, it, it would have been, it would have, what Moses wrote would have caused the ancient Jews, the Israelites, considerable angst, particularly to the kings what Moses wrote about what happened way back in Genesis with Abram. So if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, it says this. Just listen to this. When a, when a new king is chosen, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, uh, in a book, a copy of this law as approved by the Levitical priests. So it's a copy of the law that God gave to Moses to give to the people so that they knew how to order things properly. And so in Deuteronomy, it says that when a new king is chosen, he's literally supposed to take a book and he's supposed to copy the law by hand. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So the kings were supposed to rewrite the law in a book word for word so that as they did it, they would study it and go, oh, I have to do this. If I don't do this, my kingship is going to be really short. <laughs> and it's not going to go well with the people. But if I do it, I'm going to have a long time in the kingdom. And my children will be blessed. And so King David came across what Moses wrote in the book of Genesis. Because he was a new king and he would have rewritten the law as commanded to find out what's in there. And he came across, he would have come across this Melchizedek character and he went, hmm, I got some questions about this. Are you following me so far? <laughs> okay. King of Sodom, King of Salem, Melchizedek. So a king, David, thinking about this and he said, how can Melchizedek, a king, also be a priest? It doesn't make sense. I mean, when I read Leviticus, I know that priests come from the tribe of Levi and they're direct descendants of Aaron. And I also read that kings followed a genealogical line as well and they didn't come from Levi. They had to come from Judah, like me, David is saying. How does this work? This is Melchizedek is a priest and a king. This is weird. So 
he would have had another question and he would have said, hmm, how can Melchizedek be greater than Abram? So you have Berah, the king of Sodom, who was at the bottom of the barrel because he got whooped along with four of his buddies by Ketelamer. And then Abram whipped his butt. Am I allowed to say that in church? Whipped his butt? I just did. And then Melchizedek blesses Abram. How does that work? You see, in ancient days, you didn't get blessed by somebody who was lower than you, who was beneath you. You got blessed by somebody who was more powerful than you, somebody who was over you. And at that time, Abraham was the most powerful guy with 318 guys whooping four of the most powerful kings in the region. Single-handedly. He's a pretty powerful guy. Melchizedek comes along and blesses Abram. Furthermore, David would have gone, okay, he's a priest, he's a king. How can he be greater than Abram? Where did he come from? I mean, in a, in a time when there's careful, very careful genealogical records, like so-and-so begat so-and-so, and this son had that son, and they married this guy, this person, and they'd be, you know what I mean? In a time when there was this very detailed genealogical records, especially of kings, there is none for Melchizedek. And this opened David's eye to the fact that there was something greater going on than the current system that was happening. And as David reflects, he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament ever, Psalm 110. Okay, it gets better. Listen to this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. David, writing what God directed him to write, saw an end to the Levitical priesthood that a priest outside of the tribe of Levi and a king, a ruler stronger than any other king, a king of kings, was coming. One who would bring the two roles together. Now, Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus quotes Psalm 110, no less, three times in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20. He quotes verse 1. It's quoted a bunch of other places in the New Testament, but Jesus quoted it three times, verse 1, to confuse and to correct the teachers of the law at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the implication, Jesus said, is that the Messiah cannot simply be the son of David because David would never call his son Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. David wouldn't call the next person in line to the king, 
kingdom, the throne of Israel, his son, he wouldn't call him my Lord. Hmm, must be referring to someone else, said Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus in John chapter 8, so he quotes Psalm 110 in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in the book of John, John records what Jesus said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. Listen, Jesus, in his sinless life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in his ascension, says, I am that Lord. I am that Lord. He proved his Messiahship in the flesh as recorded by the gospel writers and subsequently all of the New Testament writers recognize him as seated at the right hand of God the Father, a fulfillment of Psalm 110. But the story is not yet complete. So if we go even further into the New Testament, the very last book, we come to Revelation and Revelation chapter 19 near the very end gives us a picture of this Lord, this Jesus, which really could be a continuation of Psalm 110. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, crowns, And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This Jesus personified in Melchizedek as seen by David is the King of Kings who has all authority. But we need to stop there as we contemplate this table this morning because if that were the end of the story, we should all be shaking literally in our boots. We should. We should be scared because, you see, we all stand opposed to this king of righteousness. We do. Scripture tells us that we are at enmity with God because of our sin and our rebellion. And God doesn't put up with that. He rules. He is the one who treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. People often say, what are you saved from? Saved from myself? Saved from my sin? They're all good answers. You know what the right answer is? We're saved from the wrath of God. That's the scary part. We stand opposed in our sinfulness against a God and a king before whom we cannot stand and we cannot defeat. We can't. But this is not where it ends. 
There's good news, folks. There's good news. Because you see, Jesus, in the order of Melchizedek, was not just a king of righteousness, but he was also one of peace, a priest who makes the only right and just sacrifice for sin, putting our enmity with a holy God and a just God to an end. Jesus, who is declared in Hebrews as being not only greater than us and greater than the angels and greater than Abram and greater than Moses and greater than Joshua, is declared the great high priest designated by God himself as a high priest in his order forever. Hebrews 7, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. Friends, that's the best news this morning you're ever gonna hear. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He offered up himself. so that we would be spared the fury of the wrath of the righteous king of kings. That's a little overwhelming. That's a little overwhelming, friends. because I deserve that wrath and so do you. And Jesus took what we deserve in our place. He took what we deserve. He took the punishment. He took the full wrath. He bore the wrath of God in his body on the cross. And he emptied himself of his very life blood that we might be saved, spared, set free, redeemed, brought back as from that prisoner of war status that we were in, chained, no hope, to a place of full redemption and full blessing. This same king who is king of kings and lord of lords gave himself, almighty God, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we fall under that grace. And you know what? It changes us and it changes the way we ought to live. And so as we go to the communion table, let's just make a few points of application about what this all means for us. Going back to Genesis chapter 12, we see Abram, after he was called by God, taking matters into his own hands, and he was overwhelmed by the famine. And he said, you know what, I'll, I'll do it my way and I'll make my own success. 
And it, it didn't get him very far, did it? It was an utter and miserable failure. Then in chapter 13, he said, I will trust God with my success. And he gave his nephew Lot the first choice. And he said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be relaxed about this. God, God knows what he's doing. I'm going to defer to Lot. I'm not going to lift my own eyes up to what I think is the blessed place to live and the place that will make me rich. I'm going to let Lot choose and I'm just going to just go the other way and trust God. And in doing so, he actually was pushed into the land of Canaan where God really wanted him to begin with. And then in chapter 14, Abraham said, you know, even when I am successful, now he had more than ever. And he was not only had all these possessions, but he was the most powerful person in the country, respected. He said, even when I am successful, even by what I think are my own efforts, but really are the acts of God, all of the glory belongs to God. All of the glory belongs to God. Here, Melchizedek, have a tenth. Oh, and by the way, king of Sodom, you can have the rest. I don't ever want it said that this guy made me rich. It's God. Whatever I had have comes from God. That's it. All glory belongs to him. Here's what I see for us. Do we, do you, do I give the Lord full recognition of his work in my life? Am I generous like Abraham with what I've received from the Lord? Is my life a signpost that points to the goodness, the glory, and the provision of God in my life at all times? Do I have the right perspective on success, whatever that means? <laughs> I think success is just simply doing what God asks you to do. That's success. Do our lives reflect the glory of a generous God and are we generous in return? And when we recognize that all we have received, we have received from God through Christ, our lives look different. I want to end with this. Did you notice that Melchizedek, when he met Abram before anything was said, he offered him bread and wine? Isn't that interesting? Before Abram gave a tenth to him, Melchizedek gave to Abram. That's our God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. He didn't wait for us, or he'd still be waiting. Scripture says we love because he loved us first. Melchizedek gave to refresh and to restore Abram after journeying 240 miles round trip, after an intense battle, after bringing all of these possessions back from a foreign land. He was exhausted. And the first thing that Melchizedek did was offer him bread and wine that he would be refreshed. It was the hospitable thing to do. And Jesus gave of himself to refresh and to restore us 
in the war on our souls. He tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the wrath that we were destined to bear. He bore in his own flesh when he shed his blood and his body was broken for us. And as the great high priest, Jesus, who shed his blood, not the blood of bulls and rams and goats, but his very own blood that our sins might be forgiven once for all, offers that life to us and tells us to remember what he did when we drink of the cup. And so, even as Jesus in the line of Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham, the very son of God himself, offered bread and wine of his very own body on that cross some 2,000 years ago, he now offers us the same bread and the same wine as a reminder, not of what we have done, but what he has done. He has blessed us. He has given himself for us. And he bids, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will refresh you. I will give you rest from the enemy who continually pursues you. I will give you rest from the guilty burden of your sins. I will give you rest from even the thought of having to pay off a debt that you can never pay. I will give you rest in the midst of the chaos and the battle and the daily fight to survive. I will give you rest for your soul, both now and in the real and sure promise of entering his eternal rest based solely on the full and finished saving grace, gracious work of Jesus Christ. Rest. Would you this morning enter his rest? Will you submit your life to the King of Kings? Will you allow him to rule your life Will you receive all the blessings that he has for you today? And will it start this morning with his offer of bread and wine to you?